Welcome back to the revamped series of S's Nominal Interest Podcast. The topic covered today will be all things further studies. My name is Ben, and today I'm joined by Amber and our guest speaker, Professor Paul Jensen, the Deputy Dean from the Faculty of Business and Economics and Program Coordinator of the Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Melbourne. So, Professor Paul Jensen, could you tell us a bit about your journey from when you were an undergrad student at, uh, to acquiring your PhD, then becoming the Deputy Dean and Coordinator of the BCom? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ben, and thanks, Amber. Um, so mine is a fairly uh, non-traditional pathway, so I didn't take a very linear pathway from undergraduate to honours to PhD to to become a to, to becoming a professor. It was a, a much more drawn out process, so I didn't actually start my PhD until I was thirty. So I was quite a lot older than most other people, and so. Um, I wasn't, just to fill you in at the, how I ended up in the last part of my career as becoming a professor, I um, wasn't sure that academia was going to be right for me and, and I thought coming late and doing my PhD late would probably be a hindrance to getting a job in academia, but um, as it turned out, it wasn't and I'll, I'll tell you why. The, the sort of interesting part of the story will be why, even though it was a non-traditional, non-linear pathway into academia, I actually did some things on the way which helped me a lot in becoming a successful professor in economics. So, yeah, yeah so the backdrop is that I... Um, studied an economics degree at the University of Sydney. So we didn't have a commerce degree at Sydney. Um, so Melbourne's degree is quite unique in the way it's structured and organised. And the degree I did was an economics degree. So I did um, three years of economics and three years of econometric history and three years of econometrics. So the equivalent to a sort of a triple major, if you like, in a BCom degree, which you can't do, but um, I, I really overloaded in, in the economic stuff because I was fascinated and interested and curious. And, um, and I had a, a fairly eclectic set of interests. So I was always interested in history and philosophy and, um, and economics and, and reasonably good at mathematics and, and statistics as well. Um, and so economics was a great place for me to, to study because I, I really did enjoy, um, particularly in economic history, understanding how we ended up where we are now. How, how are some yeah. countries richer and some are poorer? And what is, you know, why do we have mixed ownership with public and private um, ownership of institutions and corporations? And, and, and so I was fascinated particularly by this idea of, the relevant role of the state, you know, what should the government be doing and what is the role of the market, you know, and that is a, a big and fundamental and important question that um, that I was interested in from a, a very early part of my um, study and it manifested itself in lots of different ways in economic theory but also in um, economic history and, and, um, and certainly in terms of applications in, in econometrics. So then I, I had a gap year or the equivalent of a, a gap year where I, I took some time off to travel. I'd never, I'd never been overseas as a, as, a, um, as a teenager or as a young adult and I, I wasn't lucky enough or my, my family weren't wealthy enough to be able to, to travel and my mum my is English and she had um, family overseas that I'd never met and so I thought, oh, I'm going to take the opportunity to travel around the world. So I 
hopped from Hawaii to San Francisco to over to Europe and, and spent time in England and France and, and then came home via India. And once I'd had a good, this would have been, you know, um, the early 1990s. So um, when I came back, I thought, what am I going to do? And an opportunity came up to be a research assistant um, at the University of Sydney. And I thought, ah, oh, I don't really know what that is, but I think I might enjoy it. So I, I applied, got the job, and then spent a couple of years working as a, as a research assistant for um, a couple of professors at the University of Sydney. And I did really enjoy it, and I found that even though I hadn't had the experience of the honours year, I, I quickly adapted to the skills and requirements for doing research, you know, for serious economic um, research. And I then started a, a master's degree um, and did a lot more econometrics and operations research and economics subjects. Um, but I didn't complete that degree. I had a, a, a major trauma in my personal life. My, my girlfriend at the time died and I... Um, I just couldn't continue to study. I'd, I'd gone, you know, a number of years, as I said, into the degree while I was still working as a research assistant, but I it just decided it was not the right time for me to continue studying. So I took a break um, yeah. working as a research assistant and, and, in fact, moved to a different department and, and started working with a, a very eminent professor um, of economics, a man called Simon Donberger. And... Uh, with his tutelage and support and, you know, I continued to, to flourish as a, as a research assistant and, and more senior research assistant and I published some papers with him on, and he was an expert on government outsourcing, the issue I was talking about before, you know, where do you have the, the line, where do you draw the line between what the government does and what the market does. Um, and so I did publish quite a few papers um, I learnt the craft of research and I learnt the craft of communication of research. He was a very eloquent and articulate um, orator and writer of, of economics. He'd done his PhD at Warwick University in the UK and then had worked at the London Business School for a number of years and um, you know, he was a very inspirational character and, and um, became a close mentor and, and confidant for me. And so... Through the course of that, even though I hadn't done the honours year, even though I hadn't finished my master's degree, I had sufficient runs on the board in terms of the things I had done in order to get into a PhD uh, with, with Simon's support. So I then, um, he had a large ARC grant at the time, an Australian Research Council grant on, on um, outsourcing and privatisation. And we, well, he built in uh, uh, an ARC PhD position into the into that um, into that application, which was then successful, and then that became the vehicle for me to do my PhD. But it was effectively a paid PhD, as in I was a senior research fellow, um, you know, paid a salary through the, the Australian Research Council grant. So I had a you know fantastic. I was a you know an absolute you know luxury for me to have i had i had to do a lot of coursework and more coursework um at the university of new south wales at this point in time and then uh i took i think i took five years to complete the phd 
Um, and in the process of all of this, unfortunately, Simon died. So he was he had um, been ill with cancer at, a, at one point in the in my studies, and um, he uh, he yeah he ended up. It turned out it was a um, there was more cancer in his in his system, and he ended up dying in two thousand. Um, so he didn't get to see me finish the PhD, but I, I did complete a few years later. Um, and then I started thinking about what was next. I thought, oh, would I like to do a, have a career in academia or not? And I'd certainly positioned myself that way. I'd been very interested in in research. I'd seen, you know, the kind of career that Simon had had and others had had that were close um you know, there were colleagues at the University of New South Wales at the Australian Graduate School of Management, and I thought, oh, that's what I want. Rightly or wrongly, I wanted to be a research scholar. I wanted to be... I also, you know, I'm passionate about teaching and communicating research results, but first and foremost, I thought, I want to be a research scholar. Yeah. So then an opportunity came up at the University of Melbourne in the Melbourne Institute uh, it was a, I think it was a two or three-year contract, fixed-term position back in 2003 that I then applied for and, and got. So that was my very first job. So I've been at the University of Melbourne now for 17 years. Um, actually, just clicked over 17 years. I started in in September of 2003. Okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's been a pretty amazing journey. And even then, I should say, even then, it wasn't clear I was going to make it as a research scholar. The first five years after getting your PhD is the most important time to where there's a lot of sorting. You know, yeah. you get you might get a low teaching load in your early years in order to see whether you can hit some really good journals. Uh, but if you don't, then they ramp up the teaching and you become less and less of a researcher and more of a teacher. Not a, there's no issues with that. Yeah. <laughs> Many people, you know, are much more suited to doing that, having that sort of career. But for me, I was lucky enough to to um, land in a very good team at the Melbourne Institute. Um, we had a very productive decade where we worked very hard and got some great publications, and that set me up on my career. You know, yeah, trajectory to becoming a yeah professor. Sounds incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very, very interesting kind of. Uh, alternative pathway, but um, yeah, yeah, it's it's not one I could recommend others follow. It's very, you know, and I think that's one of the hardest things when you're in the position that you guys are in, when you're still studying, and you think you see what looks to be a very linear trajectory, um, but often they're not. And you know, if you were to unpick people's pathways, you can see there's lots of non-linearities and lots of convexities, and um, and, yeah, I wouldn't recommend anyone follow the pathway I did, but it turned out to be a really good path because I learned so much about the business and practice of research um, through a, essentially a, a, um, a traineeship or a cadetship or a, something like that with a professor over a very long period of time. So almost a decade I had um, working at close quarters with someone who was well-versed in the art and science yeah. of research. Yeah, for sure. Unbelievable. It doesn't seem as though you, you know, had set in mind at the start that you were going into, um, you know, doing a PhD and then becoming a professor and everything. So you also mentioned that you didn't fully complete an honours degree. Am I correct in saying that? 
I didn't. I didn't start an honours degree. I was invited at the University of Sydney to to do honours, and I didn't. Okay. Um, what happened was I then uh, started a master's degree, which I didn't complete. Okay, so then how would you compare, say, doing an honours degree to doing a PhD? Um, yeah, okay, let's step back a little bit and just think about how you would compare an honours degree to an undergraduate degree, and then I'll talk about yeah. that next step. So the big thing that happens in the in the honours year is that you move into, it's, it's a step up in terms of intensity. So what happens is you move into much smaller classes, much more rigorous technical training, um, and with a much smaller cohort of, of um, top quality students. So that's one thing that happens. You're still doing subjects, you've still got to pass exams, you know, that's familiar to everyone from their, from their three-year undergraduate degree. But the intensity and the, the the technical level really increases quite a lot. And then the second major change is the thesis. And I think one of the common traps that people have when they're still in their undergraduate years is they see a thesis, a research thesis, as sort of like a big essay. You know, it's just I've done lots of smaller 3,000-word essays. Now all I've got to do is a 10,000-word essay or a 12,000 or 15,000. It's fundamentally not the same in the sense that a research thesis has this component, a serious component of originality. You have to be doing something that's novel. Um, and the, the size of the, the, the threshold over which you've got to jump in an honours thesis is lower than it is for a PhD. Obviously, the originality, the contribution you're making to the discipline is much higher in a, in a PhD than it is in an honours year. Um, but nevertheless, there is a sense that you've got to come up with an original question um, and do some original research, uh, whether that's theoretical or empirical. And you need to be able to demonstrate, you need to position the piece of work you're doing within the existing literature and show how this is making a contribution to, to shedding light on something we didn't otherwise know. And that's, that's challenging because that means you've got to ask a great question. You've got to, you've got to be able to ask a, a great question. Um, I think it needs to be an important question. There's no point asking something that in economics that has you know, very little relevance or practical implication. And it has to be embedded in the literature carefully so that you can say, here's what's been done before and here's how I'm showing something that wasn't known before. Um, and that's, that's, that's hard to do. And I think that's the reason why the honours year is such a great springboard to the PhD because those bits and pieces of the research thesis are exactly what the PhD is, except the PhD is three years or four years or five years in terms of its length um, and the intensity, the height of the, the bar you've got to jump with regard to the originality and the, the contribution is much higher when it comes to the PhD than it is for the honours year. But if you, if you get into the honours year and you do well in that research thesis component and the coursework, you need to do well in both, but if that's the case and you really enjoy the research, um, then you're well-placed to get into a good PhD program anywhere around the world and succeed. Yeah, that really does sound yeah, incredible, like the transition, I suppose, from, you know, having that passion as an undergrad, then 
going to your honours and potentially uh, even a PhD is just, you know, that is the linear pathway, but it is certainly a very aspirational one. So, yeah, where do you kind of generally think PhD students usually end up after kind of completing um, their PhDs? Uh, look, a lot of them go into academia. There's no doubt. I don't know the proportions, but I would suggest that at least most of the PhD um, successful completions, a lot of people don't complete, don't forget, um, but those who do complete, most would have the aspiration of going into academia. There's no other reason. I mean, the primary reason of going into a PhD should be about getting the training to become an academic because it's a long, hard slog if you want to do that and just go out to become a management consultant or something else. There's nothing wrong with becoming a management consultant, but this is not necessarily the best training for doing that. It, this is hard, intense, um, deep thinking about a specialised area of, of interest um, where you're genuinely trying to make a contribution and, and that, you know, really is... Um, best placed for people who want to go and become an academic. Now, what happens, of course, is that, you know, there's a, it's a very competitive market becoming an, an academic economist. Um, not all get positions in academia by a long stretch. And then there's a great spread, if you like, in the diversity of academic positions that are available from, you know, lower tiered um, non-research institutions, which do a lot of teaching, um, to the, you know, the very best, you know, institutions around the world which have a very light teaching load but an expectation that you'll be publishing in the American Economic Review and, you know, and, and, and other top-tier research journals, which is extremely hard. I mean, that not only do you have to have a, a great research topic and great technical skills and great, great ability to, to communicate the outcomes of your research, you need to be extremely persistent because it can take two or three years to write a great paper and then another two or three years to, to get it through the refereeing process. So, it, you know, it really can be a long journey to get um, publications in those top journals. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting point you make. So if students aren't interested in pursuing academia, do you think there's a lot of merit in pursuing honours or postgraduate studies? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I, I think that is the case. There are a lot of people who do the honours year, they enjoy it, but they realise that research isn't for them and they don't want to go on a PhD. That's valuable information uh, and I'm glad that you figured it out through the course of an honours year rather than trying to do something else more intensively. So I think that is extremely valuable to know and, you know, the, the honours year will help you enormously in um, lots of non-academic career paths. So, you know, going to Premier and Cabinet or, um, you know, going into Treasury and Finance or any of those sorts of roles, if you've got an honours degree from the University of Melbourne or elsewhere, but, you know, I'm thinking more specifically about the program I know, um, it will hold you in very good stead. You know, that demonstrates, um, you know, a high level of understanding about economic theory, economic principles and um, application of those to real-world problems. And so you'd be highly sought after with, a, with an honours degree in non-academic positions. Yeah, so we kind of had another uh, fairly relevant question to that and it's more pertaining to do you believe 
that anyone can be too overqualified to be hired. Um, that, that's kind of a myth. Do you think that exists? Too overqualified, or you mean um, too qualified? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, can I? Well, yeah, I think you can be overqualified for a for a job. Um, I, I don't think that taking an honest degree means that's the case. I think. Um, you know, and I, I suspect that in most graduate career opportunities, whether they're in, you know, investment banks or in, you know, um, government departments like Treasury and Finance or whatever, it, it wouldn't be overqualified at all. That would be a great springboard to a successful career. Um, so I, I, I think that's probably a myth, to be perfectly honest. I can't think of any examples where I think you'd be overqualified. Are you thinking more about having the honours degree and being overqualified rather than the BCom and being overqualified? I think, yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you said about kind of having that, that background potentially. Um, I mean, if you had an honours degree in, econ in in commerce, in economics, let's say, it could be finance, but let's say economics, um, and then you went off to become a, you know, a... a you know, an executive assistant to someone or a personal secretary or something, then I think you'd be overqualified. Yeah, <laughs> but sure. I think, you know, all of the graduate opportunities that most people would be interested in, uh, you wouldn't at all be overqualified with an honours degree. Perfect. Thank you. And actually just moving back to, like, your general profession as a professor, so is the proportion of female to male professors about equal for the economics department at the University of Melbourne? Do you think this is true for other departments? Um, no. So off the top of my head, um, well, let me let me start um, when I first arrived at the University of Melbourne. So um, thinking about the Melbourne Institute and the Department of Economics together, because they're all economists. So you know we have a, a big pool of of, of um, economists at the University of Melbourne. I can tell you there wasn't one female professor in economics at the University of Melbourne when I started, certainly not in the Melbourne Institute, yeah. and I'm pretty sure that was the case in the, in the Department of Economics as well. And now we're in a position where I think out of about 20, there's probably seven or eight female professors. So we've come a long way, yeah. um, but... There is still a long way to go, and I think um, um, my and I think in the economics profession there is a long way to go with regard to understanding gender bias and, and challenges in the profession. And you know, there's been a lot of concern in the American Economic Association recently about those issues. And and I think while Melbourne has done quite well from a very low base, there is still a lot of work to be done in order to make sure that women are um, equally and properly represented in, in the profession. And I think, you know, we've done a lot of analysis looking at um, not just the professors, but looking at the pathways to professorship. And we know that you see equal representation um, for women in A, B, levels A, B and C. So coming up to senior research fellow, and then there's a crossover point. And from then on, at levels D and E, um, the proportion of women in, in positions falls dramatically. Yeah. 
And so we know where the problem is. It's right in your mid-career at level C. And obviously the reason is the, the propensity of women at that point in their career to take time out, to have children and raise a family and all those things. And what we've got to do and do much better than we currently do is find ways to help support women um, in their decisions to, to raise families and not lose touch from their, from their um, research careers. And, you know, we've, we've introduced some new policies in the last few years which are designed to try and help that and help yeah. facilitate um, connection and sort of rebounding back into their research careers. But there's no doubt there's a lot more still to be done. Yeah, for sure, I think. Um, but it's good that the university is aware of these types of issues and has been, you know, uh, kind of engaging in ways to promote, you know, that balance, uh, which certainly is um, very important. Now, kind of jumping back, um, we've jumped around a bit, but coming back to the PhD, which is obviously, you know, the top top qualification in the, um, you know, economics field. So what is, you've obviously got quite a lot of experience in this area. What is one of the most interesting research topics you've come across for PhDs? Um, oh, there's so many. I mean, and it's so, so changeable. It, it changes over the course of, a year or, you know, there's so many new, exciting, interesting topics coming up and you only have to think about, you know, the challenges we're seeing with COVID and um, and there's a, just an amazing, you know, a plethora of new top research topics that have emerged as a result of, of that and, and some interesting kind of, you know, experimental evidence that's coming out. You know, different countries, even different states have taken very different approaches to how to deal with the with COVID and and um, so we've seen different infection rates and um, different economic policies designed to, to deal with those um, infection rates. So those trade-offs between lockdown or not and the effects it has on the economy. Yeah, yeah we've got some great natural experiment um, data coming through that's going to be really useful to help us unpick, you know, which was the best strategy. And it's, it's a very interesting and important topic that... Um, you know, as I said, I think there'll be a lot of great papers coming out. I mean, it's sad that we've had to add a COVID crisis to give us this great um, exogenous shock to the world, to the global economy. And I'm not advocating that we should have more of them, um, but it has happened and, and it's given us a lot of interesting data to, to analyse. So, um, so yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say that there's one, you know, mm. you know, more interesting research topic than others. I'd just say that, you know, life... And the and the, you know the world economy is 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 very dynamic. Things are changing all the time, so new research topics are coming up. And I will say that although that looks like a new research topic, in many ways it's not because you know we've had to deal with global shocks in the past. Um, we do have a lot of understanding and a lot of theories that are designed to understand the business cycle. Um, but there's still a lot of disagreement about the best way to manage it. And so, you know, there, there, are, there are economists who argue that, um, you know, we shouldn't have, um, you know, provided additional support to people through um, JobKeeper and things like that. You know, they don't believe that's what the government should be doing. But, um, you know, most economists, the sort of conventional prevailing wisdom would be that actually that's a really important thing to do to help us get through the... The, the trough that's been caused by or the slowdown that's been caused by the lockdown. 
So, yeah, they're old issues, but these are new instances of them and and new variations of those old themes and, um, you know, they become, you know, increasingly important to try and address and hopefully at the end of this in in a few years we'll have some much better empirical evidence about what is the best way to deal with downturns in the business cycle and what is the role of government in managing uh, the business cycle? Yeah, for sure. I think um, economics has this incredible you know, tendency to repeat itself throughout history and our ability to analyse it really is and learn from that is incredible. Good. Totally agree with you as well. If there's anything good that's come out of this uh, COVID situation, it's that opportunity to give us a bit more data and you know, reevaluate past views on, on the way that governments operated and did things. Just to follow on from what Ben was saying, so of these you know, research topics that you've come across, is there any specific topic that you'd like to see more of or is less emphasised in, in the research fields? Um, yeah, that's a tricky one. Not really. I, I, I think those things um, really do need to be bottom-up in the sense that it's important to, to address research topics that are of interest to you. I don't think then they, they should be too top-down. Yeah. I mean, yes, your PhD supervisor might be able to say, you know, here's the sorts of research topics that I'm interested in and that I think are relevant and there's some unanswered questions to explore. Uh, but I think fundamentally... Um, a PhD student needs to embrace the idea that this is their work and going to be their contribution. Um, and so they really need to pick something that's going to be that they're passionate about and they're interested in. And, and of course, those things do change over time. I mean, um, you know, I've seen a number of areas of interest come and go over the last 25 years and you know some of them were fads that kind of seemed to disappear and I feel sorry for people who you know selected a PhD topic that happened to be a fad that then disappeared you know five years later and was was of no real importance but that's not easy to predict what's a fad and what isn't I mean people have views on those things and some people will say ah there's nothing in that I've thought about that issue and I can see there's a bit of a logical dead end uh, it'll get there in the next three or five or ten years I don't know how long it'll take but it doesn't seem to me to be a to be a rich vein of, of um, opportunity there and so you know people do have strong views about those things but you know nevertheless you know um, it is it is hard to forecast or predict what's going to be a research fad and what's something that's a a genuine kind of long-term area of, of interest. Having said that, you know, the, no one disputes that understanding the business cycle and the causes and, you know, solutions to minimising the impacts of the business cycle is a fundamentally important issue that's not disputed by people. It, it, it's the, the issues there around, well, what are the best ways to manage that and what is the role of the government? And there's plenty of differing views, theories and evidence around that. But fundamentally, that's a great area to, to research in. Yeah, and I, look, I will say one other thing that, you know, I, I do, you know, as much as I do really enjoy the work of, um, you know, Steve Levitt and others over the years, sometimes I, um, you know, I, I do worry that, you know, that perhaps he and his colleagues chose issues which were, you know, great little curiosities and great, you know, sort of technical um, areas of interest. But, you know, someone of his intellect could have been applying his, 
his ideas to far more substantive things. And, you know, I think this is a great paper that he did some work on sumo wrestling and trying to figure out whether there is cheating in sumo wrestling or not. And so what he came up with, um, you know, you think, well, how would you know whether cheating occurs in a contest like that? He came up with a fantastic strategy, and the strategy was that, you know, in sumo contests you have 15 bouts over several days and it matters a lot whether you finish the end of the tournament with a winning record, i.e. eight wins and seven losses um, or ten wins and five losses. And, and so the at the margins, let's think about what happens if you had seven wins and seven losses and that next bout really matters a big deal because it, it's the stepping stone to go up through the rankings, whereas if you, have a, if you don't have a winning record, you go down through the rankings. So he concentrated on millions of you know, bits of evidence around those particular bouts and was able to show that there does seem to be some reciprocity between the, the wrestlers. So, yeah. you know, if, um, if, if you're 7-7 seven and seven and you come up with someone who's already got a winning record and will have for that tournament, they, they don't mind losing because they will, um, you know, they'll still go up the rankings, but it means a big deal for the person who's 7-7. Seven and seven. And so just looking at those incentives and the way and the structural designs, he was able to show that that's the more li- it's much more likely to occur than you would otherwise predict given the, the talents of the two sumos. Kind of cool paper, really interesting, fundamentally, um, and, I, you know, I loved reading it. But really, one of the great minds of the world thinking about, you know, looking at whether there is, um, you know, cheating in, in, or corruption in sumo wrestling. I just, I just worry that that's, you know, technically sound, very interesting and compelling, but I don't think that's a really important topic for the world it is for yeah. people interested in japanese sumo wrestling yeah. and a lot of yen are invested into that so i'm, I'm not saying it's it's non-trivial that there is a lot of importance on that in um in japanese culture and japanese society and japanese finances but you know global questions around how to solve poverty and you know yeah, yeah. really it, it doesn't seem to have the same degree of of social and economic importance that I would expect great people to be working on. Yeah, it certainly seems like a very niche kind of, you know, economic investigation, which has its merits in and of itself. But, yeah, so I just have one more uh, question about whether you have any major tips. So you you said often people get these kind of fad topics that don't necessarily, you know, contribute that much to society and over the longer term, depending on trends, you know, trends as they change. But do you have any major tips for PhD or research students about choosing topics that are going to be pertinent and going to kind of contribute to the future and progress as well? So have a bit more social implication. Yeah, look, I actually do have a paper in the Australian Economic Review. It was from some years ago now, but it was called Choosing Your Your PhD Topic and Why It Matters. Um, and I do have a lot of ideas in there, some of which I've just discussed, those ideas around fads, you know, not choosing a fad. It's not great to be the, the tenth, have the 10th best idea you know, out of 50 people who have jumped onto that bandwagon of the fad. Um, and if you're trying to get a job in the marketplace, you know, after you're, you know, you graduate in, in, a, in an area, it's not a great position to be in. So I definitely think it's better to look at, you know, underlying fundamentally important 
issues and economic theory. And you do kind of have to use your instincts and your judgment a bit on that, but I think you can also get advice from great scholars, so from your advisors, but also their peers and um, colleagues. So you need to listen to the feedback from others as well. But, um, yeah, anyway, so that paper, I'm sure I can make that available to you guys. I, I have, um, uh, I've asked the, the publisher to make that freely available to, to all students who want to read it, so um, I can certainly make sure I send the references for that to everyone. But there's some good tips in there about how to manage that choice because it is a very important choice. I mean, the idea being that, you know, you may not work forever in that area, but it's the thing that will help you most when you're trying to get a job. Um, they'll be saying, well, what are you working on? Is it an important piece of work? Uh, and what technical skills do you bring to the table? So that's super important. Um, that Also, that idea about choosing something that I think you're passionate about is important. You know, there's no point doing something you don't really have a, a thirst to understand because... You know, the reality is doing a PhD is a lot of long and lonely hours, um, reading, 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 thinking, thinking, thinking. Um, and, you know, I think it's important that f that underlying all of that hard work needs to be something you care about answering. You know, if you're genuinely trying to make a contribution in the world, and most economists are, uh, and if that's the case, then you, you really should be doing something that you're passionate about or that you really care about. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be extremely hard in those long and lonely hours where you're, you're locked away and you're in your office or you study or in the library doing the work. Um, and, you know, the chances of giving up are, are much higher, I think, if you don't, if, you know, every, t every now and then you're going to need to walk away from it and say, you know what, I'm banging my head against a wall here and I just can't see the, the answer. Um, but to be able to do that and then go after a break, think, wow, I still really care about the answer. Let's go back and revisit it from another perspective. That's super important to be able to do and it kind of relies on you genuinely caring about what the answer to your work is, yeah, what the impact sure. of your work might be. For sure. I think, yeah, that motivation often does come from you know, having that purpose and being able to, you know, use that new knowledge or the models you develop to serve society on a greater scale. So, yeah. Yeah. Very I'll just give, I'll give you one other tip on, on that, which I think is super important, and that is, you know, it's easy to think, um, you know, that you do need to, you, you need to learn the skills of being an independent researcher, and you do that through your your PhD and your honours year training and stuff like that. But I think, you know, you, you do also need to learn the skills to be able to work in, in teams and to kind of understand that when you become an academic, not many people these days are writing sole authored papers with a theory and an empirical component and, and policy implications. So it is becoming more common to write in teams. And so you can collaborate with people who have got you know, um, and, and think about building teams and networks that are, you know, fundamentally relevant to your comparative advantage. Yeah. So if you've got a comparative advantage in the very technical skills 
um, then you and you know you're not so strong on understanding what's an important question or understanding how to write up a, and motivate an, uh, the question. Um, you need to find someone you can work with who can who can um, who can do all that sort of stuff. So I think um, you know that's an important skill to bear in mind as well. You don't need to be the best at everything. Um, as you become an academic, uh, there is an opportunity to collaborate. You need to be good at at a few very important things, um, but you can also collaborate in teams with others. And I think, you know, I was very fortunate in the areas that I was really good at were areas where there was a lot of scarcity in, in the market. So, um, you know, I had some skills that I brought to the to the team that I worked in primarily that were very valuable and highly valued. And I think that meant that the, the team actually... Um, became very successful because of the synergies between the, the skills that, that the people, the different people had. Yeah. Oh, well, that's yeah, very insightful. I think you know, bringing uh, playing by your strengths is always going to be, um, regardless on what level of study you are. I think that's um, definitely valuable. Amber, did you have any more questions? Yes, I actually do have final question as well following off from what you said professor paul so you know teamwork skills are very important and i'm sure as a professor or a phd researcher you would have this large connection of networks international ones as well so what are the merits of doing phds in other countries versus australia uh yeah that's a good question um so Australia has worked hard to kind of step up to be able to deliver, you know, really high quality PhD programs. But uh, you know, the reality is we're probably still a long way behind the US in terms of doing that. Um, so the the more conventional model these days, which is not the case in in the UK, uh, the more traditional approach now is to do two years of serious heavy coursework and then do your thesis after that, which might take three or four years. And, you know, the old UK model, If well, in fact, you know, many of the great economists of yesteryear, you know, the John Maynard Keynes and people like that, they didn't have PhDs. You know, they, you know, there was no, that was not the pathway. You, you studied at Oxford or Cambridge and, you know, you were a superstar working with a professor and you then stepped straight out of your undergraduate into starting to, to publish important papers. And um, so it's quite a different mode of, of training and capability building. Um, but that is slowly changing even in the UK. I mean, you now see them having, you know, much more um, US-style pathways into academia. So some of the benefits are, you know, there's no doubt that the quality of the really top US programs where they invest heavily in their, their PhD programs are hard for us to, to compete with. I mean, we do have a great PhD program at Melbourne, absolutely. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is that if you were to look at the outcomes of our PhD program in terms of the placements of the students that go through it and then where they land you know, we're, we're not achieving the same success that, you know, similar universities in the US um, would be achieving. So, you know, they, they've got a very, very well, you know, thought out, structured and supported PhD program. So every student gets, you know, um, um, uh, not just a team of advisors to help them through the process, but then they get a job market 
um, advisor who helps them get placed in certain in certain institutions, and so they really work hard on making sure you get your job market paper right, and you can sell your job market paper in, in the talks you give, and then you get you know landed in a good place because you've got great references from your your advisors. So yeah, there there is a you know a long way to go in terms of being able to to match that. So I think that is a big benefit of being able to go off into the US, for example, to go off and do a PhD. Yeah, that's certainly very like fascinating. The differences between you know just how it's structured based on which place you're in. So you know the UK with its more very you know, traditional kind of uh, programs compared to the US, which is often kind of emphasises the holistic and you know a bit more you know cross field involvement as well. So mm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, so just to wrap it up, on behalf of ESSA, we'd like to thank you, Paul, for the expert advice and incredible insight you've given us for today. Especially in these challenging times, hearing from passionate university staff like yourself really helps to give students more direction and guidance on topics such as, you know, further study and honours. So I'm sure the listeners at home have really uh, learned a lot. So for everyone out there, thanks for tuning in and hope uh, we hope you'll join us for our upcoming podcast on more of our most in-demand economics topics. If you don't already, please like and follow ESSA on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn pages uh, so you can stay updated on the latest curated content and events with our favorite sponsors. Thank you for your time. Thanks a lot.